Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Father, we ask that as we just go through this, that you would teach us uh, those things that you would have us to, to know and and to meditate on, and that they would change our lives. And we just thank you that we could sit here in freedom in this country and and even do this, Lord. There's brothers and sisters who uh, yesterday, um, in their time zone, Lord, were uh, quietly huddled around um, probably all days of the week just trying to um, hear your word, tearing out a piece of the Bible and passing it around to their friend once they've memorized it, Lord, in secrecy. We pray for our brothers and sisters in chains who are suffering uh, today. And we ask that uh, your, your word would bring freedom to them and their nation. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, last week we did Acts chapter 16, and I don't know about you, but that's a pretty fascinating chapter, wasn't it? I mean, I just, I'm blessed by uh, how God, uh, he just, he, he knows how to illustrate his own word. You know, it's not like you need to go outside so much for a bunch of illustrations. You can just kind of go to the Word itself to to get more context. And Acts 16 is is Paul. You know, he picks up Timothy, he picks up Luke, and these, these precious people that have influenced each of us today. And on his journey, he just had had a big argument with a dear brother in the Lord. And they had split ways because John he wanted uh, Barnabas wanted John Mark. I think his John uh, Barnabas' nephew, 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 that is, uh, to come with him, and he had he had abandoned him halfway through the first missionary journey. And Paul's like, "No way, I'm not having this little guy come ruined. This is all business. This is the gospel. We're not." So he was pretty hardcore, you know, and uh, it got so fierce to where they they parted ways. And so, one direction went uh, Paul, uh, went, went Paul and Silas. In the other direction went Barnabas, and so Paul started to go up north, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go to uh, through certain parts of Turkey or other parts of Asia, and so he just kept going kind of straight along the path. And that's where he picked up Timothy and Derby and some other people, and they started. And the Holy Spirit gave him a vision, and he said he was going to go to Macedonia, which is Greece. And so they crossed over, and there they were in Philippi, and right smack dab in the middle of God's will. They go and they say hello to these women because they didn't have a, a synagogue. There weren't enough men in the town. And, and he meets Lydia, a seller of purple, a businesswoman who was probably uh, very good at what she did. Um, it's a very, uh, again, uh, so there's some influence there uh, as far as the world is concerned. And, and, and yet you see that she was a worshiper of the Lord and, and how, uh, you know, we can be anything. God can make us anything we're doing. I mean, you, you represent tons of different trades and people, and we've got uh, you know full-time mothers in here to mothers that are full-time working and being full-time mothers. I mean, we've got uh, dads who are out working. And, uh, you know, so there's just tons of different people. But are you a worshiper of the Lord? And that's what set apart Lydia. And God opened her heart to his word as Paul began to speak to her. And that was the birth of the church. And notice that they were praying, and that was the first thing that the church was founded upon. They were a praying people. And God answered. And the second thing, we see that 
as, as Paul was going to prayer, he was a man of prayer himself. He was devoted to the Lord in prayer. As he went there, he, uh, he, there was a spirit girl, uh, a girl who was filled with a, a spirit, and she was able to divine things and was making money for her masters and just kept calling out, hey, these two guys are proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Not necessarily the PR you want, right, from a demon. And so Paul finally gets fed up, turns around and, and says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And because of that, because these guys were losing money now, they got so upset that they just they grabbed Paul and they dragged him before the uh, the magistrates, and basically they all they they had him whipped and beaten and thrown in jail. And it was while Paul is in the middle of God's will here, getting beaten and torn apart and thrown in jail, that he meets the Philippian jailer. And what they're in their they're in their chains. They're praising God after being severely beaten. The word says. And what happens? There was an earthquake. Shakes the doors. Open the chains were off. The doors were open. The, the jailer was about to kill himself. And Paul says, "No, wait. We're all here. Everything's good." And it was through that that this guy becomes converted. He just says, "What must I do to be saved?" And Paul says, "Believe." Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you'll be saved. You know, believe in Jesus. And that's what happened. And he cried out. And for us, we have to remember, just like Paul, that we might be smack dab in the middle of God's will and going through very difficult times. Be open to the suffering around you. Be opening to the people that God might put in your path that you had might not otherwise been in front of had you not gone through what you went through. You know? The doctors that you're in front of, the lawyers that you're in front of, the situations, the people. God might be bringing you to this situation to proclaim his gospel because there are jailers out there. There are jailers in this town that need to be freed. And God will use us in our suffering to do that. And somehow in our culture, we've, we've, we've put it together that um, in order for me to be in God's will, there is no suffering involved. I mean, don't you think about it? I must be doing something wrong because things are going so poorly. Now, that might be the Holy Spirit working on your heart saying, yes, you are doing something wrong. But quite often, when God sends us into a circumstance, there's conflict, there's suffering all around you, but God wants to show himself strong in the middle of it. Be aware of this. Be aware of the opportunities that God has in front of you. You are the church. You're just like Paul. You are the light of the world. You're the hope. And so when you're having that very difficult encounter with that person at work because you are a hard worker and other people don't like you working so hard because you're making them look bad, think. Think. They're going to be going after you. They're going to be you know, maybe messing with you, giving you a hard time, talking about your back. People are watching. You are emanating Christ. They don't hate you because they hate you. They hate you because they hate him, him, Jesus said. Live our lives worthy in a manner that God will get glory. Amen? So, little side note, but here we are ten years later, and Paul's writing to this church that's been established. And as we're going to see, this church has gone through a lot of suffering. But Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Notice Timothy was picked up on the way 10 years earlier, and he's a disciple of Paul's. Um, 
He's been bringing him along in the ministry. He's, 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 he'll see he'll write First and Second Timothy to him as he goes and establishes churches. There's been a uh, you know ten years with Paul. It's a pretty cool thing. But it says Paul. Paul's the author of the book. You know Timothy is Paul's half Jewish, half Greek disciple. Um, and Paul and Timothy identify themselves as what do they say? Servants. And that word in the Greek is bond servants. That's doulos. And what you know, it's like, okay, great, Matt. This is wonderful. I want to hear a half hour about this. No, what you're going to. So it's great. <clears throat> in ancient Jewish culture, uh, remember uh, indentured servants, basically you could serve seven years, and then at the end of that time you'd be done serving. Well, we got that from the Jews in the Old Testament. What would happen is if you really, if you wanted to, you could go and you could work for someone for seven years, and at the end of that seven-year period, you were free to go. Remember the story of Jacob? Wanted to marry Rachel. And so Laban, his uncle, says, okay, work for me for seven years, and I'll give you to her. Wakes up, and it's Leah. I don't know how that happened, but it did. And so he wakes up. It's Leah, and he goes, hey, this is not what I was bargaining for. He goes, okay, well, work. what do you expect from me? I, I've got to get rid of my, you know, my firstborn daughter first. And I'd like you to go ahead and uh, work another seven years, by the way. And we can take Rachel. So he works another seven years, and it says it was as if it was a day because he loved her so much and all that fluffy stuff. And so he works for seven years. At the end of the seven years, he's done. But this seven-year increment is very important. Well, what, what uh, is very important? Because if at the seven years you loved your master, he took care of you well, and you saw no other life for yourself, you could voluntarily give yourself to that person for the rest of your life. And this was called a bond servant. And what you would do is you would say, you know what? You've been so good to me, so kind to me. You've taken care of me. You've, you know, I, I don't see my life anywhere else except for serving you. You've been a great master, and I want to be with you. And I want to surrender myself to you and to your household. And so what they would do if, if, the, if the person agreed, he would take them out to the gates of the city. He would talk to the elders of the city. They would take their ear and put it up against the post and smack it all through, all through it to get a hole through it. And so you'd have this thing, and, and you'd be identified as a bond servant. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. That's just powerful stuff. He's so good. Where else would I go? And this is the desire of Christ in our lives, that we would voluntarily surrender to his lordship. That we would be so taken by his provision, his protection, and his goodness towards us, that we would voluntarily say, I give the rest of my life to your service. And as in John 6.68 says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. Matt and Christine, bond servants of Jesus Christ. I look out at you, and you say you're bond servants of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying I, I am totally surrendered, but I want to be. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not out of obligation or out of you know coercion. It's a devoted response to the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Bond servant. Love that.
to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Notice he separates God's holy people from the overseer and the deacons. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. We're all, come on now. <clears throat> the letter is addressed, first of all, to God's holy people. How many of your translations say saints? What do you know about there? So, uh, saints, right? The word saint means holy, means set aside. The instruments of the temple were holy. They were set aside. They were made for a specific purpose. They, you know, the, the, uh, the knives and the things they used to cut the sacrificial meat were not used at your home at your dinner table. They were set aside. They weren't common. This holiness set aside for God's purpose. That's what the word saint means. And so the translators of the NIV took the word saint and clarified it, meaning uh, God's holy people. There's a couple different NIV translations, okay? If you have like 84, you might have one, and then if you have a more modern one, it might change it around. And so if you have the New King's James Version, it'll say saint. And, and if you have the NASB, it'll say saint. And so um, there's always a, a constant clarification on the part of the translators to try to bring it into our English. And so uh, the question is, uh, who qualifies to be a saint? Is there a process to becoming a saint? Sadly, uh, men love to elevate men above other men and... Uh, I'm going to talk about, if you have a Roman Catholic background, I'm going to talk about this for a minute, but uh, the Roman Catholic Church has done this so that now when we think of the word saint, we think of a super-Christian. We think of someone in a different class altogether than the common person. It may have begun, I think, as an honest attempt to uh, you know, say, hey, you know, these people have done some pretty amazing things and have devoted their lives to, to God. And I, and, I, and I have no doubt that that is the intent to kind of say, wow, look at, look at what God did through these people. But you know that good things can kind of keep going into something that God never intended. I don't know if, if you experienced that in your own life. Boy, you know, something that begins as a, devo a devotion to the Lord turns out to be a, a ritual and then turns into something that is just meaningless. Anybody experienced that in your own life? You know, I think you can sometimes do that in your own marriage, you know? Um, but the Roman Catholic Church has developed a process called canonization of to determine if someone is worthy of the title of saint. They had to have been dead for five years. Their verified miracles had to have been performed as a result of praying for them after, after they were dead. Uh, there are testimonies involved in this process of their lives and other criteria. And so there's a big long list. And, I, and again, I'm not trying to point out, uh, you know, I'm not trying to give you the full doctrine of it. But in this process, the person is given different titles until they are finally deemed a saint. And saints are prayed to all the times by millions of people across the world. And on the American Catholic website, it says of saints, certain Catholic saints are associated with certain life situations. These patron saints intercede to God for us. We can take our special needs to them and know they will listen to our prayers and pray to God with us. Different saints for different situations. 
such as the patron saint of air travel, uh, St. Joseph, Joseph of uh, uh, Cupertino. Sorry. As a child, Joseph showed fondness for prayer. And after a short career with the uh, Capuchins, he joined the Cavalentuas. Whatever that is. I'm sorry, guys. It's a little Italian here. Uh, following a brief assignment carrying on the friar mule, Joseph began his studies for priesthood. Those studies were difficult for him. Joseph gained a great deal of knowledge from prayer. And he was ordained in 1628. Joseph's tendency to levitate, levitate during prayer was sometimes a cross. Sometimes people to come see this as much as they might have gone to see a circus sideshow. Joseph's gifts led him to be humble, patient, and obedient, even though at times he was greatly tempted and felt forsaken by God. He fasted and wore iron chains for much of his life. The friars, uh, the friars transferred Joseph several times for his own good and for the rest of the community, and for the good for the rest of the community. He was reported to and investigated by the Inquisition. The examiners exonerated him. Joseph was canonized in 1767, and the investigation proceedings of canonization, 70 incidents of levitation were recorded. While levitation is an extraordinary sign of holiness, Joseph is also remembered for the ordinary signs he showed. He prayed even at times of inner darkness, and he lived out the Sermon on the Mount. And he used his unique possession, his free will, to praise God and to serve God's creation. And so if you're a pilot or an astronaut or an air traveling traveler, uh, you would pray to this person to intercede on your behalf because they're familiar with air travel, um, levitation. And what I'm saying is that there is a saint for every single situation you can think of. Now, when I look at your lives, I look at God using you in extraordinary ways. And no doubt, as I look through history, I see some of these men and some of these women used in, in amazing ways. And their devotion to God and these things were awesome. And I don't want to uh, minimize that whatsoever. And I have no idea about the levitation, okay? Um, I just took one of these because I was recently on an airplane. And, boy, I would have loved to have prayed to a saint then. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I, I had prayed in the morning and said, Lord God, I need a verse. And it's so in interesting as Judy shot me a verse that morning. It was 6 a.m., but it was in the windstorm. And I was taken off here from Walla Walla. I said, Lord, I just need a verse. And all of a sudden, boom, on the email, and Judy just shoots me an email. It was just awesome. I was blessed. But I have there's some contradictions to the idea of saint with the teaching of Scripture. And again, there's dear people all over the world who believe this, but I, I want this to be clear concerning what we're talking about when we get into these types of discussions. First, we aren't supposed to contact the dead. You are, we aren't, as Christians, supposed to be doing that. That is wrong. We don't do it. We don't contact the dead. Secondly, Jesus, when teaching his disciples how to pray, specifically said, when you pray... You're to pray in this manner. Father, will you address our prayers to the Father? Thirdly, 2 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says in chapter 2 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases our Savior who wants people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator 
between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom. Lastly, we need to recognize that there is a great tendency for man to put burdens on people that were never intended. Burdens upon people that were never intended. This is our tendency as men, especially religious ones. This one, this is one of the main reasons why Jesus was at odds with the Pharisees, like in Matthew 15, 8 through 9, where Jesus says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus got really on the, the Pharisees of the day for teaching as commandments the doctrines of men. And isn't that the tendency of man? To take something of God and to, and to minimize it and then to take something of man and elevate it. Because, let's just face it, God doesn't do things the way I want it done. My way is easier, and don't you all agree? Yeah, let's all vote on it, and there we go. And it gets elevated. And this isn't just for the Catholic Church. It's at the Protestant Church, too. We're not, you know, I mean, this is humanity we're talking about. We do this stuff. But this is the same with the doctrine of sainthood. God did not command us to pray to each other after we move on. Did he? No. To the contrary, we have direct access to God himself. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended in the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. No matter what situation you're in, you don't have someone who can't empathize with your weakness, therefore you need to go somewhere else. He knows what it's like. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to have help in time of need. Man-made religion seeks to alienate us from God. God declares that he has made a way for you to go directly into the throne room of the Father and to jump on his lap and to cry out, Jesus is not removed from your circumstance. He is well acquainted with your life and your situations. He intercedes for you, gave his life for you, not so that you could go to someone else, but so that you could go directly to the Father who loves you. Sainthood is a man-made false system of worship, and if you hear the sound of my voice and are burdened by the rules of man, listen to the words of Jesus. All things have been committed to me by my Father, Jesus said. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son has chosen to reveal him. In the very next verse, he's crying out to a society that has been laden with man-made religion. And he's crying out, and he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Matthew 28. 
So if you have this as part of your life or your background or you, or you might be, you know, running into praying to a saint, stop. And go directly to the source of life. Go to your Father. Go to Him. He loves you. Paid the way. Anything short is undercutting the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. As if somehow Jesus only died so that you couldn't go all the way, but you could kind of go around it. No, his blood made it split the veil, go right into the throne room of grace. Amen? So anything else? It's not going to do it. So how did you become a saint? Lord God, save me. <laughs> and by the way, you're a saint. Each of us are saints. We're holy people, separated by God. There is no class of Christian. We are one in Christ Jesus. You know, when we talk about, here in a second, we'll try to get through it, but when we talk about elders and deacons, it isn't God's holy people, the elders and deacons. Right? Or deacons and elders, however you want to view it. It's God's holy people, the elders and deacons. Jesus is the head. And it's actually a servantarchy. Jesus said, what? The greatest in the kingdom is what? The least. And the king of kings and the Lord of lords bowed himself and washed the disciples' feet and said, you go and do likewise. That's not, that's, a, that's out of this world. Men don't do it that way. We sit on thrones, you wash my feet. Amen? So, we're saints. So Paul's writing to the saints at Philippi together with the overseers and the deacons. And so we see that over that 10 years, a leadership structure in the church at Philippi has, has, has come about as Paul is writing uh, this. 10 years later, we see the saints, which we are. We see, and then we see the overseers and the deacons. We've already spoken of the saints, and I'd like to take just the remainder of our 10, 15 minutes here to go over the last two. Um, with elder affirmation upon us, I just think, you know, hey, Lord, it's interesting you brought us to this point, this, this, these verses. And so I just would like to expound on them just for a minute. Um, it talks about the overseers there in verse 1. The episkopos in the Greek, interchangeable with the word bishop. You know, they were the leaders of the church. These are the elders and the pastors, the like Timothy, Titus, Saul, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, and all the other guys mentioned there. You know? Uh, literally, the definition of episcopos is a man uh, charged with the duty of seeing that things uh, to be done by others are done rightly and corrugator, guardian, or superintendent. We're executing the orders of the king is what it is. That's what overseers are, elders, pastors, executing the orders of the king. And so... Uh, one of these guys, uh, one of these overseers was a young guy named Timothy. And, and writing to this young overseer, Timothy, Paul, he gives some great insight on, on qualifications, the type of person that is to be um, in these positions of authority. Um, and as we look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, so if you flip over there with me, it's to the right. For a second. 
Thessalonians, 1 Timothy. says in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Hey, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Notice he's not saying the person who seeks it is noble. He's saying that the task that they are seeking is noble. Because in that word noble means excellent. It's a high situation. It's, it's very important. It's, 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 it's noble. It's, it's up there. And therefore, it requires the character to fit the office. Does that make sense? Like President of the United States, that's a lot of responsibility, a lot of thing. you know, it takes character. Because you can cause a lot of health and you can cause a lot of damage in positions of authority. Right? Moms, dads, same thing. But he's saying here, to run, a, you know, to be this person, oh, this overseer in the church, it's, it's, it's a high calling. Not that we're any better than anyone else, right? It just takes a mature person in the Lord is, is what he's getting at. And so Paul's writing to the saints, and he says, one of these guys, uh, anyway, he says, First uh, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And then he begins. Paul tells Timothy the guidelines, starting in verse 2. Now the overseer is to be above reproach. In other words, blameless, not open to censure, irreproachable. Okay, I just went and, and I'm, I, I'm giving you the, the Greek definitions of what they're, what they're talking about there, okay? So he's talking about this is what, to be blameless, not open to censure, irreproachable. That's uh, above reproach, okay? Faithful to his wife. <clears throat> On some of your translations it says, or or of one wife, right? It's, but the idea is not a polygamist, not cheating on his wife, not separated from his wife, but faithful. He's one with his wife, right? Temperate. This means uh, sober. Uh, I, would, I would say that this is more, asp- uh, uh, more of an aspect of their thinking, but not a drunk, not given over, to, given over to things that would take over their faculties. They're moderate. I think this has an emphasis on decision-making abilities, being alert from what I see there in the Greek. Paul hits a different aspect of this when he talks about drunkenness. But uh, temperate. They're to be self-controlled. That's of a sound mind. You're to be sane, not insane. In one's senses, curbing one's desires and impulses, self-controlled, temperate. Respectable. That means to be well-arranged. Seemingly modest, hospitable, generous to guests, able to teach, apt and skillful in teaching. This, I believe, has the heart of being able to live out and convey the teachings of Jesus Christ to people. It doesn't mean you have to be able to stand in front of people and talk for 30 minutes and mumble like I do, right? That's not the heart because not not... All teachers are, you know, talking this way. Teaching is a lifestyle. Teaching is, is mimicking, is, is, is emulating something, and then answering questions and being able to convey the things of God. This has to be a part of it. Not necessarily a good public speaker, but be able to disciple, I think, is the heart of it, right? 
not given to drunkenness. You can't be a drunk. And I believe this would probably extend in our modern culture to other substance addictions, you know? Not addicted to heroin or your meds and these things. It can't be overtaking your life, like in the manner of drunkenness, right? Not violent, but gentle. Not a guy who's ready to go to blows, you know, but rather is gentle. This speaks for the physical act of violence. Some Someone who solves things by force as a primary way of dealing with things. This is not what we want to have because there are a lot of conflicting and difficult situations and we don't want to respond in the flesh, especially the physical flesh. That causes problems. Imagine we had a disagreement and someone punches you. Jeez. Well, praise the Lord, you know, it's like, no, <laughs> what are they doing? They're not controlled. So these types of things, not quarrelsome. This speaks, I think, more to the attitude. One who abstains from fighting, not antagonistic. Not quarrelsome, not looking to pick fights. Not a lover of money. You know, it isn't their primary pursuit. It doesn't, it's, they're not obsessed with it. Hebrews 15.5 has the same Greek word here for not a lover of money. And it's described like this. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So just uh, keeping your lives free from the love of money. It doesn't mean you can't have money. It's not talking about wealth. It's talking about motive. Correct? We've, in this society, in this culture where you know, you're alienating the section of our society because they have money or whatever it might be. It's not talking about that. It's talking about your motive, your love for money. I can tell you as a poor person, I could be, I could be very, very well motivated to have greed in my heart, right? It's, it's all of us. We're all susceptible to that. And so it's saying that it can't be ruling your heart and your mind. It's not your, not your primary pursuit, right? Obviously, we need to take care of our families and all that stuff. So that's not what it's talking about. But he must manage, verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And so one way to tell if a man is fit to be in this office of overseer uh, in the church is to look at the governance of his own home. Look at the relationships. Look how they do stuff in their own lives. Does he manage his own family well? Is he taking care of the needs of his family in a godly manner? Right? Do his children obey him? Is, you know, is there a breakdown in, in, in teaching our children obedience? How can we teach others to obey the commandments of Christ when we have situations where our, kids, our own kids aren't obeying? Now, I want to little, put a little star next to that, that I have known many rebellious, crazy kids that had nothing to do with their parents. That God, I would say this, that God is the best parent in the world and has the most wayward kids. Okay? So, but I think there's the heart of it. Are they, are they seeking to discipline their children? Are they seeking to teach them obedience, or is there lawlessness in their home? I think that's the heart of it. But again, you go before the Lord. You, I don't want to make excuses um, you know, for, for shortcomings in my own life. It is what it is, right? And so 
Jesus made several comments about money in the kingdom, and I think this uh, this this uh, this applies to uh, teaching your own children. But how can we be, be responsible with spiritual things if we aren't responsible with physical things? Does that make sense? And so. Um, those types of things that I think are there. But but not only that, he must do so in a manner full of full respect. You can sit there and make your children obedient by force and anger and all these other things. Or maybe in motives that aren't really great. But I tell you what, is that worthy of full respect? That's hard. <laughs> Amen? And so... That's that's an important thing to weigh out there. All this is a reflection on how a man will oversee the church of God. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Paul will get into this with deacons, but an overseer must be seasoned. You know, temptation to operate in the flesh and in, in spiritual warfare surrounds an overseer in the church, an elder, a pastor. It surrounds them. The enemy is targeting them in their families day and night. Warfare surrounds. And the, and, and the tendency to just react in the flesh is it's there. It's present. And we sometimes fall into it. But one who has not been trained in righteousness, you know, I, I think that's, that's something that popped in my head. Hebrews 5 says, in fact, I mean, uh, a, a, a recent convert usually hasn't, they haven't had the time of the word working in their lives to be able to discern good and evil. They just haven't had that experience yet. And so that takes time, no matter how mature you are as a person. Uh, you can, you know, it's it's important that you're mature in the Lord. And so Hebrew 5 says, in fact, through this time, he's talking to the people there, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, and this is the part I wanted to get at, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. And so I believe that people uh, who are to be leading in the church are people who have who have, have gone through this process and who have been trained by the Word of God, discerning good and evil. Does that make sense? Recent conferences haven't had enough con constant use yet to train themselves to distinguish good from evil. And so, uh, and the temptation in leadership is to take very difficult matters into your own hands and to not surrender to the Spirit in His timing. It is. How many of you parents as leaders in your own home, struggle with that. Husbands. The devil became conceited, thinking he had the answers, that he was it. And you can read about his five I wills in Isaiah chapter 14. That's what he's referencing there. He became conceited. I will do this. I will do that. I will do that. Instead of Lord, Lord, Lord. And so he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. We live in a small town compared to where I came from, right? We live in a small town. And if I'm a leader in a church in, in the way that I live my life or the way that I run my business or interactions and sporting events or with other kids and all these types of things and situations, if this leads to a poor reputation with outsiders, that's not good. Stuff travels whether you want it to or not. 
And I'm going to experience something called disgrace when I'm confronted on that. And when confronted, this could lead straight into the devil's trap, and there are many of them. And so we should be found blameless in our community. When someone says something about one of the leaders, it should be like, no. Their character, that's just not, it doesn't fit. Right? Now there will be those who are going to maliciously malign our character. They will just do it because the enemy is using it. And that will happen. And that's why Paul says, hey, you're never to take something against an elder in the church or pastor. You're never supposed to just take that for surface value. Let there be two or more witnesses, right? And then you approach them and talk to them about it, first of all. And then it proceeds on there, Matthew 18. And so Timothy laid out the criteria. Paul laid out the criteria for Timothy. And as he commissioned this young minister to establish the leadership in his local congregation. And so um, Titus was also commissioned to do, do the same thing. And because we're going long, I'm just going to read that part and I'll stop there. And we'll talk about deacons and then we'll go into the rest of the chapter next week. But in Titus chapter 2, if you flip over right, Second uh, Timothy to Titus, I think it's right, yeah. Titus chapter 2, verse 5, and we'll be done. <clears throat> 5 through 9, that is. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Leadership is important. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe also translated trustworthy, right? A man, his kids are trustworthy. And it's hard to determine whether he's saying they believe in the Lord or they are trustworthy. They're not open to uh, the charge of being wild and disobedient. And since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy messages as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Obviously, this is very rich, and I would encourage you to go ahead and, and on your own time, reread, you know, Timothy there, First Timothy chapter 2, and, or chapter 3 and Titus chapter 2. And I'd also you to, to, to uh, I would, you know, when you look at this list and you start putting it up against people, gosh, is, there's a lot of things in that. I, I look at that list and I'm going, there's a lot of great things God's done in my life. There's a lot of great things he has yet to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But nevertheless, it stands. We don't change the Word of God to meet us. We change to conform to His Word. Amen? There's two ways that I think that you can be helpful in this situation. One is to be praying for us. We're people with common passions, right? 
but we're called to something that we need to attain by God's grace and his strength through the Holy Spirit. Be praying for us. When you see glaring weakness is in Matt, and they are there, and you can go on this and go, boy, look at that number seven on the list of 25. Look at you know, several of those. Come talk to me about it. But pray. Don't talk to others about it. Talk to me about it. Pray. Pray for us. Pray. Be, we're on the same team. Need your, need your prayer. And I, I would say also get to know us. Get to know us. We are just goofballs. You know, I mean, we're just like, we laugh about the same stuff. But it's not like, as we stand up here, there's this, you know, we are saints. You are not. No, we are all together. We are in Christ Jesus. God has just separated some of us to, to make sure that there's health and growth. And he's called us to that. Pray for us. Amen? Pray as we can pray for you. Does anyone want to stop all that? And he'd want us just to be critical, very critical of one another. I don't think that's what the Lord wants to have. I think he wants us to say truth for what it is, but say it in love, that we would grow from it and we'd be unified in it. Amen? And we'll get to deacons next week, okay? Because I think that's an important understanding in our church. Something we're praying about as elders. Father, we, we lift up this this uh, topic and we ask that, Lord, anything that Matt has said that it's just of the flesh, that you would just wipe from uh, the record of your people, Lord, and your spirit would just, just, just sift what is good and place it in their hearts. And your word is good. And I pray that you would just encourage these people. And I pray that you'd strengthen the leaders so that we could be a deep blessing to these people. Lord, give us strength and wisdom and guide us because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the Lord of Christ Community Fellowship. In the name of Jesus, amen.